Hello, and welcome to The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with me today from Nat Geo's original series, Genius Aretha, are writer and showrunner, Susan Laurie Parks, and executive producer, Brian Grazer. Well, welcome to the both of you, and congratulations on Genius Aretha. I have seen the series, and it is such an achievement. And <laughs> I wish we had 10 hours to talk about just how much work went into writing this and producing this and doing all the incredible labor that none of us see. But I want to let you know it does come through, and congratulations. Oh, thank you, Stacy. You are very welcome. And before we get into the series, I did want to talk a little about something that's near and dear to me, which is writing. And Brian, I'd like to start with you. During quarantine, I rewatched one of my favorite movies, Splash, of course, one of your early classics. And I was intrigued to see that you got a story credit on Splash, which I sort of made me laugh and made me uh, happy for you. I just love the idea of you coming up with this. And obviously, you worked with your incredible writing team. But I was curious, you've worked with so many writers over the years. And I was wondering, what do you most enjoy about that process? And what do you consider the secret to giving the perfect note to a writer? Wow. Tough question. Well, <laughs> look at SLP is like laughing at me because it's so complicated. Basically, on Splash, I wrote two drafts of that script, but they were so terrible that I really <laughs> got a story credit. But I did get nominated for an Oscar as a writer. I saw that, and I wanted to make sure people knew that because that is a hidden fact about your history. What I like to do the most is prospect for ideas. You know, I look for originality in the story or the world. And then I look for a writer that is interested in that story and world and ultimately the character. And that is they themselves is sort of connected to the source or connected to their soul. And so everything that there's often the channel from that writer onto the page is pure and authentic Nothing can ever be perfect, but that to me is the richest part of what a writer's capability can be and what I look for. And that was the gift that I was looking for in SLP, which I found in, in first contact. <laughs> you know, the minute I met her, I knew this person is not only really a talented and highly achieved as she is the first African-American woman to win a Pulitzer Prize. That's right. And many other similar awards. And just so we know, for our listeners' edification, SLP is Susan Laurie Parks. Just for those people not knowing who SLP is. I just want to add in the drama category, though. I don't want to Pulitzer Prize in the drama category because there were greats before. That is true. And in terms of giving notes, Brian, writers can be sensitive, as we know. It takes a lot to put words on the screen and to live with them and to feel confident what has been your secret to giving notes that not only make a writer feel as if his or her work is being seen and appreciated, but that also makes the product better? Well, the first 20 years of my career, I just wrote and or produced lots and lots of comedies. And there were very gifted writers that would write. Lowell and Babalu wrote many of my hit comedies. And I, one day I pitched them a scene that I want. And they said, look, just tell us what you're looking for. Don't pitch the jokes. <laughs> so that became a metaphor and a model for how I would give notes. That I wouldn't pitch dialogue and I wasn't going to... I would read something and have a holistic experience with that and would feel 
things that are speaking to me and I might feel something that I'm missing? Am I missing an emotional peak? Am I trying to celebrate greatness and feel that in a way that makes me cry? Or I can actually connect to what I want emotionally or what I wished could be there. And then I would just say that. And in the case of Susan Laurie Parks, my notes were very general. She didn't need that help. (laughs) Yes, I did. I think the only thing that Susan Laurie Parks, and she should speak to it, is she hadn't written a big scale television show. And if anything, and she'll speak to it, the only thing she would find to be valuable probably is just the actual technique of what a television show would look like. Time frame, just like left side of the brain stuff. So all we wanted to do was just optimize her talent. And the way most optimize that is to speak in emotional terms or in broad terms. And then the technique, she'd ask questions if she wanted to. I love that. And on a lot of those notes, SLP, I'd love to talk about your work as a playwright, which is so inherently different from writing a feature film, which is so inherently different from writing a long-form series such as Genius Aretha. What has been the learning curve for you in migrating your incredible talents to this format? Yeah, well, Stacy, there's a lot of similarities. And what I uh, tend to focus on as a, an artist are the similarities. I think similarities are the key one of the keys to synthesis, we have to work across the aisle. We have to, you know, see ourselves in the other. I have to see, okay, so how can I translate the things I do well in playwriting to the screen? And I definitely approach it with a very humble attitude because I'm so aware of the things I don't know always. Even when I write a play, I'm aware of what I don't know. And I constantly ask for help. You know, I would call and text up Brian and say, hey, man, I got a, you know, a question for you. And he'd always respond really quickly. Amazingly, I was like, oh, thanks. You know, I was always asking for help. But the things that are similar are, for me, character. The pulse of a character is the thrum, the heartbeat, in my experience, of a play, of a screenplay, of which I've written many, including like The United States versus Billie Holiday. Yes, congratulations on that as well. Thanks. Teleplays, I worked, you know, for Oprah quite a bit, you know, and did things like Their Eyes Are Watching God, which we did on TV. So the pulse of the character is something that I latch on to. The pulse of the character for me will create a groove, like a groove you find in a record, like a vinyl record, you know, or a groove you find in a dry riverbed. And me walking that groove, me meditating in that groove, me praying in that groove, there's a lot of calling out to not only Brian Grazer, but to the spirit, you know, (laughs) help me, help me. (laughs) They're equally powerful, I think we'd say. Well, (laughs) now, no, no, no. We all have our powers, but a lot of calling out to the spirit, a lot of praying on it. And as I meditate on it and walk in that groove and listen to that groove, the heartbeat of the character, it informs the writing that way. And for me, the same is true for theater, for screenwriting, for television. It's also rhythm. You have to get really tight with your rhythm. And theater... In my experience, when it's well-written, it has a real dovetailing, like a good piece of furniture, you know, like you slide open that drawer of your grandma's old, you know, whatever, shift robe or whatever, and it's like, oh, wow, that, that's really beautifully made. The same with a play. 
timing is everything. And it's great. Brian used to write comedy. Timing is everything. It's very, very important. And writing a teleplay, timing is so important. Not only running time and things like that when we get into the nuts and bolts of it, but the energy, the energy of a scene, timing is everything or almost everything, really. So those kinds of skills carry over. And then I just have to open my eye a lot bigger when I'm writing for the screen, whether it be film or television. You know, my, my mind's eye, my third eye, my eye, like my me, I have to open it really wide because the screen is much larger than the stage in the moment that the viewer experiences it. Speaking of pulsive character, obviously everything that we're talking about today is about this incredible character, this woman, Aretha Franklin. And I wanted to know what has she and her music meant to both of you in your lives? And Brian, what drove your passion for wanting to make this project and anointing her the next genius in this anthology? I don't know why that makes me emotional, but it does. And that's probably why I wanted to do Aretha. I think because we'd gone over hundreds of names to be the third genius. And it wasn't even brought up ever. And so I think that's what makes it emotional to me and that someone as great and seemingly obvious to me <laughs> that should be anointed the third of the series of geniuses, the fact that she wasn't ever brought up when we talked about really so many people, I guess I feel like, that's a problem. Well, and certainly those who have been far too long left out of the canon and also left out of that grouping of genius and what we define as genius. I'm sure that's probably what you're speaking of. Yeah. And it's also, I just felt like, wow, a black woman should absolutely, it just seemed, every aspect of it seemed obvious when there was this flashpoint moment of Aretha Franklin. So much that I, when I uh, introduced it to Disney, meaning Courtney Monroe and Peter Rice and Bob Iger, I said, I'm doing Aretha Franklin as a story <laughs> and she should be our third genius. And if you hesitate, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it with somebody else because I'd already pre-sold it to somebody else. I told Mick Jagger the story and he happened to tell a buyer and said, Brian Grazer has this thing. And so I was already pre-sold to somebody else. So I just was like super committed to doing it. And actually Mick Jagger, I bring him up, uh, is a friend of mine and we'd just done the story of James Brown and he knew Aretha Franklin and I used to ask him questions about her and he deeply admired her. He only missed the fact that he didn't get to be with her much because she, her guidelines and conditions were so strict, like no airplanes. I mean, she would create what she wanted to do with absolute certainty and what she would and wouldn't do. That She had absolute boundaries that were finite. Wouldn't go into air conditioning buildings. She didn't want to perform in air conditioning. The SLP could tell you many of these things. And the thing that really spoke to me mostly was there were two things that were going on that were super important. One was she had elevated and punctuated the genre of R&B by being so original and so extraordinary and so committed to her voice. And then was rewarded by, you know, not only 
internally in studios and by hit records, but by the outer world was hailed. And so much that it was commercialized into that she was the queen of soul. No other person has ever been the queen of soul. She was the queen of soul. And that was it, over and out. So she was, had every one of those accomplishments. And I thought to myself, wow, but she did this all in the most difficult time in America, particularly for black people, particularly for a black woman, for that matter. And then you really dig into that, you know, civil rights, a father that was gifted but domineering. And so everybody had sort of good and bad about them that was around Aretha Franklin. So she had to navigate so many different obstacles to even just be able to perform. So that's how it all sort of came about. So in a lot of ways, if I'm understanding you correctly, the genius part of it is not only the work and the creation, but also the circumstances in which the genius created the work. It's sort of the adversity factor, everything she faced in this process. And for SLP, how do you think Aretha compared there were many women making beautiful music at that time, many women who, speaking of Billie Holiday, who preceded her in this fight to be heard. How did Aretha, in your eyes, how was she set apart from Diana Ross and other women of the era who had put a face to that movement, but also aren't doing the same types of creationism moments, <laughs> so to speak? How is she distinct in your mind? Right, right, right. I'm thinking, again, it's context. So I'm thinking more of her in terms of Billie Holiday, who was, they were not strict contemporaries. But the fact that Aretha's genius was flowered, to my mind, because of the context, because of the family that she was raised in, you know what I mean? And other brilliant singers would not have flowered in that way. I mean, it's like compare and despair. I don't really look across the board. I don't really compare Aretha to what other singers were or were not doing so much as I just continually focus again and again on what Aretha did. And like Grazer was saying, Brian Grazer was saying, sorry, like, great. Like, like Grazer was saying, like we're on the corner, man. Um, like we're hanging out on the corner. But like Grazer was saying, you know, the context is so important that she was a woman in the music business, a, a business dominated by men, now also, but back then so much so. She's a black woman in a music business dominated for the most part by white men. And the fact that she thrived and succeeded and flowered in that context, we just have to keep in mind. A lot of people, when I was talking about the project initially, they were like, oh, you're talking, you know, there are a lot of male characters in your, your, your concept. I had to remind them, yeah, because not only is it an historical fact, but by telling the truth, we are allowed to see it. You know what I'm saying? So Aretha walking into Fame Studios, you know, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, 1967. At that moment in time, Alabama was under the governorship of George Wallace and George Wallace's wife. Segregation now, segregation forever. That George Wallace, she goes into the studio and she's greeted by a group of white male musicians. Now she's down there to make a soul record. She triumphs. Why? Because she digs down deep. She connects with her roots. I will trust in the Lord, she says. And from that trust, from that context, from that fertile, beautiful context of her family, of her father, of her growing up, of her own 
ballsy bravery and tenacity and desire more than anything to have a hit, to have a star in the firmament. That's what she wanted. She wasn't content just to be a turntable artist, as they call it, you know, where you would, your records were well received. People would buy them, but they'd only play them you know, on their turntables at home. She wanted a hit. She wanted a star in the firmament. And that tenacity and desire drove her to dig down deep in that moment in the studio and create the songs that we still are like blown away by many, 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 many years later and will continue to be blown away by. So I don't know if other singers at that time were doing that similar kind of thing, you know? I think there was a lot of great music, as you know, Stacy. a lot of great music was being made back then, but maybe not in that kind of crucible, which is quintessentially, to my mind, America. It's the American crucible that her soul was fired in. And uh, I'm getting excited. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I love I'm it. just going off. <laughs> but those scenes you describe of her walking into multiple rooms filled with white men, it's interesting and it's so well directed and well produced because you see on their faces, not fear, but actually not to use the obvious word respect because she's using music as the bridge, right? She's a woman, they're men, she's black, they're white, but this is this beautiful gift that they have in common. And I think that's what's so incredible about what she was able, she's thinking we may not have anything else in common, but we both make art and let's do it together. And I think that's, for me, what speaks to the genius piece of it for Aretha. Yes, but she does, Stacey, there's just a beat. You know, she does have to not so much win them over because they start out uh, from jump, they are kind and respectful and, and lovely. But she does have to prove herself. It doesn't all come together, but, uh, you know, right <laughs> away. Course, you know, course. there's a lot of struggle. They get very lost in the studio before they find it. And I think as a black American woman in the entertainment business today, we are put in a position where we do have to overprove in a way that I don't see my male, black, white, or other contemporaries having to do. So it's just a real deal. There's one scene that I love so much. It's the pizza box moment where there had been an empty pizza box on a piano and she was performing a song and then somebody had removed the box and she could sense something dissonant in the sound. And she said, who moved my pizza box? And this guy just thought, oh, I was throwing it away. She brought it back and put it back on the piano. She was perfectionistic and she had a vision of what she was doing artistically. And it was so precise to talk about the pizza box, but the pizza box fractionalized the acoustics in the room for her. It wasn't just like she's a freak. It was more that she was highly sensitive to the sound and the pizza box and the science of music would prove this quite frankly. The pizza box does have an effect on the acoustics in the room. I mean, that's absolutely correct. And so eccentricities were birthed out of artistic perfection. That is kind of what I think is going on in our film. And the other thing is, I just want to say, Susan Laurie Parks, of course, just, you know, did a spectacular job on a film. And I've made many films and we could have made a film out of this. But we were not interested in making a film out of this because... To make a film out of this is like, why don't you just go to your streaming service, you know, and listen to the songs. But what we wanted to do was show a very unfair period of inequality 
in America at that time during the civil rights movement, a brutality in that time. Uh, people were multiple agendas and two and three faced dimensional human beings that she had to navigate. It, it couldn't have been more difficult. And yet she still became the queen of souls a net result. So I think that's what intrigued us or captivated us. And of course, Susan Laurie Parks could speak greater to that because she wrote it. What aspects of the quote-unquote music biopic were you most aware of not wanting to traffic in, I guess, sort of the tropes and the cliches, but also which of them were you willing to sort of indulge in? Well, I mean, Stacey, what would you call a trope or a th- from a, a, a biopic? So I think for me, especially for the musician biopic specifically, we have, you know, the first act is usually, oh, the rise to fame. They hear their song on the radio for the first time. They're in the car driving around. Oh, I can't believe I'm on the radio. And then sort of act two is, you know, the wealth and we see them enjoying the wealth. And then we see the drug addiction take hold. We see the tragedy. We see potentially death and violence, abuse potentially. And those are the things I'm always looking for. And those are the things I'm glad I didn't see. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, sweat. This is a thing. So while there's certainly a place for that kind of storytelling and and it's all good, you know what I mean? All kinds of storytelling, as long as they're getting to the truth, right, are interesting and valid. With Genius Aretha, we know what it wants to be from the title. Genius Aretha. We want to contextualize, frame, highlight, demonstrate Aretha Franklin's genius, right? So sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we need to shake up chronology a little bit. Because like you said, in that kind of storytelling that you just described, I imagine that the viewer would be kind of lulled into some kind of, uh, I mean, nothing bad about like McDonald's hamburgers, but it sounds like you go to the McDonald's drive through and you get me here. And that's the ties, you know, but we wanted to focus on her genius. We wanted to unlock the genius that we each might have inside of us. We're on a mission with this show. <laughs> All of us, I think. Cynthia, Anthony Hemingway, our producing director, you know, we were out there. Well, I like that you're, and in some senses, you're challenging the audience to be ready for the unexpected and to also look within to help define what genius means to them. It really works too. Thank you. And speaking of Cynthia Revo, the star of this incredible journey, I would love to talk about, first of all, casting her and choosing her. I know some people may think this, you know, petite British woman, maybe not the most obvious choice for Aretha. I think she certainly has the soul, the incredible music talent that one would expect, but she's maybe not the obvious choice. So tell me a little bit about selecting her and why you thought she could bring the needed magic to this part that maybe others couldn't. Right. You met her before I did. You were hanging with her before I did. I did. I met her before SLP, but I heard how extraordinary Cynthia Riva was. And then I realized that she actually performed Aretha songs on a red carpet. And I saw that and I thought, wow, that's a connection. That's like a soulmate or something. And I also knew she always got two standing ovations on Color Purple on stage. So I met her and she really captivated me. And I said, do you sing? And so she started to sing and she she had songs that she could generate for about 40 minutes or 30 minutes. And then I immediately brought it up to Susan Laurie Parks. And Susan Laurie Parks said, let's do it. This is great. And then should tell you why she thought 
that and all the reasons. I mean, Cynthia has this, like Grazer was saying, she can sing, you know, brilliantly, sing brilliantly. She also is a fine actress. She shared that quiet strength that I felt was central to Aretha Franklin's personhood. You know, Aretha, the very public woman who is also very private. And Cynthia really understood that, that tenacity that Aretha had. I felt like Cynthia has that also. British, um, I was taught that soul is universal. That's how I was brought up. So where I come from, you know, my family, we look up on all people as being a part of it. She was just, she's so talented and so eager and ready to do the work. It's very evident from the final result. And I'm so curious too, SLP, what bonus did you see in Cynthia, like yourself, having a background in theater? Because she really does take up space in a very unique way that I can even sense just even watching her on screen. It's funny, theater, uh, the theater people I know, we know how to work. We work. The fact that getting it right uh, on one night, you know, you have to hit it again night after night after night. That kind of, you know, the agility and what do you call it, endurance that we have as theater people. Also, as a writer, I have to write something that Last. I mean, we talk about a film or a, a TV show lasting for a long, long time, sure. But a, a script, it has to be flexible enough to allow anybody in. And at the same time, it has to be strong enough to last. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of Top Dog Underdog on Broadway next year. And the numbers of people, predominantly men, predominantly black men, but a lot of women, too, who have taken on those roles. The script, the text is strong enough to embrace and allow to be embraced by all kinds of people over the past 20 odd years. So, and Cynthia understands that there's a, just a, a love, I think, of hard work. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Very much like the woman she's portraying, right? Right, right. And for both of you, is there a scene or a sequence or a moment or even an entire episode in the series that you feel is completely emblematic of her genius, a snapshot, a performance? Is there something you think that you executed in the show that if you could, you know, tantalize someone with just that, that would speak to your entire mission? Maybe see what Brian thinks. The scene that I actually showed up for was the chicken dance and the song. Yeah, Muscle Shoals, man. Episode one. Yeah, because it was the juxtaposition of Aretha Franklin going to Muscle Shoals, acclimating, which would be like going into outer space or something. And then she acclimates and almost spontaneously is it capable of performing excellence. I guess that was it for me. What about you, SLP? One of my favorites is the pizza box, which leads into Border Song. It's an Elton John song. We don't hear that often. And it's one of those little known gems that Aretha sang as part of when she created, for her, what was a protest album. My aunties always said, this is a protest album, Young, Gifted, and Black, even though a lot of the songs you could dance to, like Rock Steady. But that pizza box moment for me reminded me that, yes, let us remember that she, like Brian said, she was idiosyncratic. She wanted certain things, but in a pursuit of excellence. A lot of people say, oh, she's a diva, you know. No, she's a hardworking, brilliant woman. And not only when the young man brings the pizza box back in the room, out of the garbage, where he thought dutifully he was doing his job, you know, he took it, he just throwing away the trash. No, 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 it wasn't garbage. He brings it back, he puts it on the piano, and then she, Cynthia, arranges it a little bit. Because it can't just sit on the piano. It's got to sit in a certain way. 
because in that certain way, it will produce the sound that she's going for. So I just love that moment. And then she launches into Border Song, which she sings so beautifully. It's, it's a very moving song for me. My point earlier about that being my favorite scene, I was right on target then. <laughs> it's because it's, it's just so, it's one of those artist moments that we don't think of Aretha Franklin so much as a person who has one of those artist moments. But we tried to really find moments like that in Aretha Franklin's life and we created them as well. Yeah. And for my final question, I'm going to be very mean and make you pick your favorite Aretha song and why. I know that's got to be the most difficult challenge I could be presenting you, but unfortunately you have to give me an answer. I love Save Me because of the horns. And in that moment in our series, we switch from the studio to the stage. And every time I watch it, I say to myself, genius will never be the same in that moment. Because we're bringing in that music. And I think it blows the roof off of the concept of genius, or at least as it's expressed in this way of storytelling with Nat Geo. But no, my favorite song is Rocksteady. Because my aunties in far west Texas, when I was a kid, we'd come home from church on Sundays. They'd have the 45, you know, the vinyl in their purses. They'd put the 45 on the turntable. They'd tell me Rocksteady is really a protest song. So they'd give me the real deal about it. And then they'd show me how to do the various dances. Brian talked about she was doing that chicken. They taught me how to do the funky chicken to rock steady. So that's always going to be my favorite song. Oh, and I love that a protest song can also be a groove. I think that's what Aretha has shown us, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right on. Okay, Brian, what's your selection? Save Me, definitely, I was going to say. Well, only because it's sort of what some people need to be, and particularly Aretha needed to be saved. I mean, I was really captivated by it because of its literal meaning. To me, anyway, because I sort of felt like I could see it. She needs to be saved. I mean, there was just so many things that were, again, like obstacles, cones on the road, just had to get through. And I like the song Think a lot. And I like Rocksteady, of course. So I just copied SLP. What about change is going to come, man? Cynthia really, really crushes it. In, uh, what was it, episode three, Change is Gonna Come, the Sam Cooke song. That's great, too. Right? Brilliant, beautiful performance. Cynthia really brings it home. And before we wrap, do tell us a little bit about the combining of recordings with Cynthia's own singing, of which there is a ton throughout the series, and her own piano playing, too, because I do think there's always that sense of, is he really singing? Is she really singing? There's a lot of actual live performance in this piece. Oh, yeah. Cynthia is really singing. It was so beautiful because she would sing live. I mean, she would do a lot of pre-records, of course, but she would also sing live so she could, you know, be in the moment. And it was stunning when she would, like in that Muscle Shoals scene where she sings uh, live and the entire set, everyone, we wouldn't just be quiet. People would stop moving because when you're not moving, you can hear better. And everyone wanted to hear every single nuance that she was delivering. Absolutely beautiful. It was so still and quiet as we listened to her sing. The piano playing, Aretha, brilliant pianist, but we had a pianist, a Cece, come in and play the piano, who's a brilliant musician in her own right. Well, it's incredibly seamless, and the entire thing is just such a beautiful testament to all your hard work and to Aretha's legacy, which is only further intact after seeing this. And I want to congratulate both of you and everyone associated with Genius Aretha, and I can't wait for people to see it. Oh, thank you so much, Stacy. Thank you so much. Thank you both very much for your time. 
I'd like to thank Susan Laurie Parks and Brian Grazer for joining me today. For more information on Genius Aretha, please visit natgeotv.com slash FYC. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and this has been The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. Thank you for listening. The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers, Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Writers and producers, Dave Beesing, Thomas Green, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Associate producer, Shanna Blackman. And production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. In association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.